0: You are a melody I hear you all the time It really gets to me it's always on my mind Hey guys what's up welcome to Dune for Bartello my name
1: is June Lee Today on the show we have Ken Rosenthal who is the baseball insider for Fox Sports and he does the sideline reporting on the uh, on the Saturday games and uh, Ken was awesome uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this podcast. He, he kind of gave a lot of insight into his rise in, in his career. And uh, we talked a lot about the the age of scoopage in in Twitter and among many other things. And, and Ken gave some pretty great uh, poignant advice on, uh, on pursuing a career in journalism and, and just being in the industry as a whole. So I think you guys are going to enjoy the conversation. If you guys... Aren't subscribed to the show and this is your first time listening thank you for listening uh you can subscribe to the show on itunes uh make sure to do that check out some of the previous episodes that we've had we've had buster only on the show jason stark many many others and uh and and a lot of it has been uh has been really great and i really appreciate the support you guys have given uh, if you guys haven't rated the show already on itunes please 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 go over there and do that it really does help out leave a little comment it really does help us out and uh, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at BartoloPod. And uh, and just support the show in general. Uh, tell a friend. Uh, without further ado, this is Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports.
0: You are a melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. You are my favorite song. Your love is justified. You play me all the time so today on
1: the show uh we have as of last night uh emmy award winning uh baseball reporter ken rosenthal ken how is it going it's going well june how are you uh, congratulations on the uh on the emmy award that must have uh been a thrill
2: it was it's a real thrill and it's quite surprising and um Last year I won for the first time and this year I never expected to win again. I figured, well, we got one, that's really amazing. That that'll never happen again. So when they called my name again, it's just it's shocking, it's overwhelming. And the best part was if you've ever seen me, you know I'm short, I'm five foot four and a half, and the presenter Shaquille (laughs) O'Neal. That was the total best part.
1: (laughs) And and the picture that you posted on Twitter today is like absolutely fantastic. Uh, Like you can see Shaq's hand is basically the size of his head.
2: That was the common (laughs) reply by everyone and in fact my wife said the same thing as soon as she saw it last night and normally I actually do not like to post stuff like that. I I, I don't like to promote like that, self-promote, but that picture I knew people would love it so I just said okay give it up for one day and it was a, <laughs> that was a heck of a picture and it's He, was, not and he it's... was nice enough to do that too because he could have left like we you have to go back and pose for the photo in a, a different room and he was in that room but he was leaving mm-hmm. and i said "Could you please take a photo with me <laughs> and he did he was really nice and gracious about it
1: yeah it's not every day you get a, a photo of shack or just like any human being who is like that large
2: Absolutely, I've never seen a human being that large, except for covering guys, of course Right But that was impressive
1: Anyways, uh, thanks for taking the time to come on to the show today, I really appreciate it I just want to kind of start off from the beginning So, uh, where did you grow up, and uh, how did you kind of get into sports and get your interest into sports media?
2: Well, I grew up in Oyster Bay, New York, which is a town on the north shore of Long Island And it's a small town, kind of then it was mixed A lot of different kinds of people. I wouldn't say it was diverse as far as racially but certainly ethnically it was. So I had a lot of different people, a lot of different friends and it was a cool place to grow up as it turns out. Now it's kind of a ritzy place. (laughs) But back then it was was something that I didn't realize was such a good town to grow up, up in but it was. Now like a lot of people who get into sports media I got into it because I couldn't play. (laughs) I was too small. and Basketball was actually my best sport, but I had no chance of making any team. I got cut ninth grade team, cut the JV, and I never tried again. So after I got cut from the ninth grade team, the coach said, listen, you're never going to make the team. You know that. But would you be our manager? Keep the stats and all of that. So I said, sure. And I did that. And then I started working for the school newspaper, and I became the editor of the school newspaper, and that's kind of how it all started. When I was applying to college, I knew I wanted journalism. I applied to Northwestern, uh, which is the best journalism school. I applied to Penn, which had a great paper. Columbia, which had a journalism school in graduate school, but they had that kind of thing. And that's what I wanted to do. And... I got into Northwestern, but I had had back surgery when I was a senior in high school. So staying close to home was kind of necessary. I actually went to college on a body cast from my neck to my waist. Wow. Yeah. So going to Northwestern, as much as it appealed to me, it was a little bit away, and I was going to have to have that cast removed, and different things were a factor because of my back and all of that. So I went to Penn. And I was a little afraid, too, to go to journalism school because I didn't know for sure. And it turned out Penn had a great paper. I made some great friends who are friends of mine to this day at that paper. And that's when I really got into it. At the start, I didn't know that I wanted to be a sports writer. I actually just signed up for the paper and asked the editors if I could do sports and news. But that paper was so good and so big and specialized, mm-hmm. they said, no, you can't do that here. Mm-hmm. So I had to choose. and <laughs> Really? At least at that time, the cooler guys were in sports, in my opinion, and that's why I went into sports, and that's really how I got into it.
1: Yeah, I, I think the the background in the Daily Pennsylvania is, is really interesting because you know I'm at Cornell right now, and we're the you know the Cornell sure. Daily Sun, and um, you know I think the the Ivy League papers in general kind of have an interesting relationship. Uh, and I think I think everybody kind of looks at each other to get ideas off each other. And I've always kind of viewed the Daily Pennsylvanian as, a, as one of the one of the better student newspapers in the country, let alone just in the Ivy League. Um, and I actually, I visited the offices a couple months ago when I was there for a Cornell Penn football game. And the environment there was like very dynamic and electric. And it, it felt like a really positive place to like be learning how to do this journalism thing.
2: Well, of course, when I was there, it was 32 years ago or whatever.
1: <laughs> but it
2: was that way then. And I really am proud to have come out of that paper. I'm proud that I even became the sports editor of that paper. That wasn't an easy thing to do. There were a lot of great people. And when I was there, my freshman year, the executive editor was Dick Stevenson, who went on to be something great at the New York Times. When I was sports editor, the executive editor was Peter Canelos who became a big editor at the Boston Globe in Spotlight. He is one of the editors in the meeting. They mention his name. (laughs) So they had, even then, a lot of amazing people. And it was quite a place to start. And that was really where I caught the bug, so to speak.
1: Mm -hmm. What were some of the the lessons that you learned early on uh, learning at the student newspaper?
2: Well, that's a great question, actually. In terms of... Writing and all of that, we kind of taught each other to write and report. It was not – the paper was not an outgrowth of any journalism school. There is no journalism school at Penn, just like Mm -hmm. at Cornell, right? Right. And it was passed down from one class to the other, and you just kind of learned that way. And the guy who we all looked up to was Rich Hoffman, who had graduated the year before I got there. He went on to become a columnist at the Philadelphia Daily News. He went right to the Philadelphia Daily News out of school, and that was a great, amazing sports section back then. And he became a columnist, and now he's the sports editor of that paper. And he was the guy we all looked up to because he had made it. Not all of the guys that I worked with in sports were going into the business. In fact, most of them didn't. But we just really looked up to him. And the biggest lesson that I got from him, and I can't thank him enough, is humility because he... In his own way, he wasn't trying to teach us humility, but we'd get carried away with ourselves, as college kids can do. And he'd give us a look and or an impression or something, and we'd know, all right, you're just a little smart-ass college kid. You haven't done it, And that stayed with me. It stayed with me and is with me to this day. And if you work in our business, if you have any sense of awareness, you know how humbling it is every single day. You can get knocked down every day. And that really was the biggest lesson, more than any journalism technique or anything like that. And I'm grateful to Rich for that always.
1: I know there's a lot of people, especially around my age, who get discouraged from pursuing a career in media uh, just because, you know, there's the sentiment that, you know, it's hard to get paid and it's hard to make a living. It's just so competitive in, in general. Were there any doubts for you when you were considering a career at that point in time?
2: Yes, absolutely. And I will say it was easier then than it is now. And all the young people today who have doubts, I can't blame them. And it kills me when a young person asks me, how do you do this? How do you get into this? And I don't have great answers right now because I don't know that there are great answers. It's tough. It's tougher. When I was starting out, the way to do this was to go to a small newspaper and work your way up. Now, some people, like that guy Rich Hoffman I just mentioned, started on a big paper. The Philadelphia Daily News at that time was a big paper, a big deal. But the majority didn't, and you knew that you had to go to kind of a smaller place and then get started. So I got rejected by 75 papers. I remember the number. <laughs> and the only place that hired me and offered me a job was the York Daily Record in York, Pennsylvania. And really, the only reason they offered me a job was because someone from Penn and the Penn sports section was already there. And he was a good friend of mine, John Della Pina. And he sort of talked them into it. And I remember my dad, at the time, he (laughs) was like, you can do this, but you're not coming home. And you got to make a living doing this. And I didn't know enough to be worried about that. Money didn't matter to me. I didn't care. I just wanted to do this. So I went to this paper for a tiny salary, and it was fine. We lived in a duplex, John and I, for three hundred twenty dollars a month in New York, and we loved it. It was a paper with a lot of young people, and uh, we we enjoyed it. We put out the paper. We did everything from editing to writing headlines. We were terrible, but we did it, and we learned. and there were real doubts about how to make a living, at least on my dad's end. I just didn't think about it. I think kids today are more savvy. They're more aware of that. And it would be a discouraging thing to look at the way the business is right now and and fear the idea of making a living and supporting a family. I didn't have an idea that I'd ever have a family. These things didn't even cross my mind. But once I did have a family, yeah, it was tougher. And... Even as a columnist of the Baltimore Sun, later, I was not making a whole lot of money. And that's just the way it was. And I, the only thing I can say is that I got discouraged from going into the business by a guy named Dick Sandler, who was a sports editor at Newsday. I was an intern at Newsday behind Tom Verducci for two years. And he basically said, you should go to law school. You basically said, I'm not good enough. And that ticked me off. And it kind of motivated me. And that's why I'm always reluctant to tell someone young, don't do this because people told me not to do it. And that's not right. You shouldn't tell someone not to pursue their dream. At the same time, you have to be realistic. And it's just a tough business, A, to get started in and B, to make a living. Mm
1: I mean, how did hearing that uh, affect you? I mean, it, it seems like you have a, a chip on your shoulder as a result, but I mean, how, <laughs> how, how did it practically affect you hearing that advice? I mean, how did not practically
2: it, affect me at all? I was going to go into the business. And I think in fairness, I went there to see him after my, or I was in my senior year. And I did not want to come back as an intern for a third year. I knew that that was not realistic or fair to them. It's time for other interns. And I was not asking for a job. Tom was going to come back. And take a job because they loved him rightly so he was great even then he was the best and I, I wasn't at that level honestly I wasn't I'm still not at that level but I honestly was not at that level so I just went in kind of for advice and that's what he said and I just after that it didn't really affect me at all I was just going to apply to papers anyway and that's what I did
1: mm-hmm. I mean in those in those early years uh in your first couple of jobs what was one of the the biggest mistakes that you made well, <laughs> where do you want me to begin? <laughs> the,
2: the biggest, and this was a very viable lesson, and it might sound like a simple thing, but when I was in York, Pennsylvania, I didn't cover very glamorous things, and I was the low man on the totem pole there on a four-man staff, so we had some people who would go down to Baltimore to do the Orioles games. We covered Penn State very much because that was not close to York, but they had a huge alumni. Base in York County. And so the things I would cover basically were smaller community type things. And one of them was basically an adult men's baseball league. So I covered a game one night in that league. I know it might sound silly that we would even cover this, but York was kind of a small place back then. Still not a huge place. And I must have gotten in the story six or seven names misspelled. No exaggeration. And the next day, what happens? Well, people all they want is to see their name in the paper. The whole purpose of those stories is to get people's names in the paper in the community. And I completely screwed it up. And the sports editor, rightly so, he gave it to me good. And obviously, it's a valuable lesson: get the freaking names right.
1: <laughs> um, I mean, uh, I, f- I feel like that that story, beyond just uh, you know getting the names right in the paper, has a lot of value in terms of just developing that rapport with the people that you're covering and making sure that you're paying attention to those kinds of small details.
2: That's true. That's for sure. Now, those lessons, though, came later, more so after I started covering the Orioles in Baltimore. Now, there was a job in between that as well, and I started learning those lessons there. I covered harness racing and the flyers and high schools for a paper in South Jersey. So that was really the first time I had a beat. And that's when you start to develop relationships. And then, of course, when you're covering a baseball team and you're there with them every day, it's a necessity to do that or you can't survive. You have to talk to
1: everybody every day pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, you briefly mentioned that, that job in Baltimore. Uh, how, did, how did that end up coming about? Uh, and uh, you know, you mentioned that you had a job before then. Um, sure. What was kind of the, the path towards that job at the Sun?
2: Okay, <laughs> this is a funny story. To get from New York to the South Jersey paper, which was, is called the Courier Post, it's a Gannett paper, I was one of many applicants, and the woman who was the secretary to the sports editor the assistant to the sports editor she called me and she asked me what my salary requirement would be and i laughed i said if that's what's going to decide this i'm gonna win she said well no we're not deciding this that's not deciding but we just want to know i said and i just told them what my salary was i said this is my salary there's no requirement you know and you i figured they would give me a little bit more and of course that's what happened i was a little bitter and I got the job. And if you know Gannett, low bidders get the job. I I wasn't that smart to know that, but I figured if she's asking the question. So that's how I got there. And that paper, I wouldn't say it was the best paper, but I made a lot of great friends there, and there were some great people there. Mm -hmm. And I learned a ton. A ton. And while I was covering harness racing, I became friendly with the Daily News's, Philadelphia Daily News horse racing writer, and he's their horse racing writer and college basketball writer to this day. Dick Girardi, he's a great guy, and he kind of took me under his wing. And he knew the sports editor at the Baltimore Evening Sun. He was friends with him. He, Dick was from Baltimore, and it was he who got me to the Baltimore Evening Sun. And I was 24, and I was hired as the beat guy to compete against Tim kirkchen Oh. And Tim kirkchen was. If people see him differently now, and he is different now, and he's great at what he does. And. One of my favorite people of all time, but he was the most competitive guy you can imagine. I don't know that people could see that because he's such a nice guy on television. And he comes off that way, and he is a nice guy, but he was a killer. And they hired me to compete with him. And actually, Richard Justice as well at the Washington Post. And they only I only got that job because I was young, and they wanted someone who was going to work and just bust his butt and they understood that I was going to get crushed. They, they understood that and it was okay because they felt that I was going to grow. Now, I wasn't so confident but it, it, it happened and the funny thing there is I remember the meeting with the executive editor of the paper and the Baltimore Evening Sun, may it rest in peace, was a much smaller paper than the Baltimore Morning Sun. It's a similar relationship to the Philadelphia Daily News and Philadelphia Inquirer. And I went to dinner with the executive editor, and he was like a Cardinals fan or something. They talked about that the whole time. didn't really say anything to me. asked me anything. And then told the sports editor the next day, this kid's too young. There's no way. And I looked. I was 24, and I looked about 17 at best. So the sports editor told me that the next day. He goes, I don't know. And I said, wait a second. I didn't even talk. But <laughs> what, I don't know what happened. That guy became a friend of mine. Uh, uh, The executive editor, he became a great champion of mine And was a great person, Jack Lemmon And Jack Gibbons was the sports editor And he took the chance on me And he Is one of my best friends to this day
1: So we'll get back to Ken in just one second But first, a word from our friends over at SeatGeek Baseball season is in full swing now And you want to make sure with summer coming up To get your tickets to uh, Any baseball game that you want to go to Or any concert that you want to go to SeatGeek is the only place I ever go To look for tickets to a game or concert I have the SeatGeek app on my phone I just used it the other day to check out some some Red Sox tickets for the end of the season actually. Uh, SeatGeek has taken all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you can save time and never miss a deal, and you can even set alerts for upcoming games, and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every single ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on its value so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price of your ticket and unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from start to finish and it never surprises you by jacking up the price at checkout with huge fees. Listeners to Dune of Bartolo can get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase so to make sure to get your $20 rebate, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code BARTOLO. And SeatGeek will send you twenty dollars after you made your first ticket purchase. So make sure to download the free SeatGeek app today and enter the promo code Bartolo. Check the guys out; they're great. They're supporting the show. And back to Ken Rosenthal. I think the the you know the idea of competition on on a beat is sometimes lost. I think when you're a consumer and you don't really get a sense of that other than like through Twitter and you know seeing who tweets a uh, scoop X Y or Z first could you give me a sense of what that competition was like for you and being around all these like very great writers now, like what was, what was that, what was that, uh, environment of competition like?
2: Uh, awful (laughs) because I was so inexperienced. Tim was so good. Richard was so good. And they killed me every single day. Tim, especially. In fact, Tim and I were on the beat together I can't remember if it was two or three years before he went to Sports Illustrated. I believe it was three. No, it was two, two years. In those two years, I got him once. And I got him, it was little, it was nothing. And he came back the next day and got me like four different ways. And they were all bigger stories than the little one. And it was almost like, don't you dare beat me. I'll crush you like a bug. (laughs) And it was so deflating because I got him once and it was like, the worst thing that ever I ever did because he killed me so much the next day. And this was not like the Twitter age. The Twitter age, you get beat, you can catch up in two minutes if you can get something to, somebody to confirm something. It's not something you necessarily have to wear. We all take pride in it and all, but it's much different. Back then, I'm working for the evening paper. The morning paper would come out at about midnight. So the guys on the desk at the evening paper would get it. They would know at that point what Tim had. Well, at midnight, it's too late for me to catch up. So I had to wear it all day, that night, all day, until the next day, paper. And it was humiliating. And I got humiliated all the time. And Tim, Tim, I couldn't, you know how sometimes people don't like their competitors or something like that? It's natural. But I couldn't not like Tim. He was a great person. But, oh my gosh, it was a hurricane every day. And I drowned.
1: (laughs) Was was baseball the sport that you most wanted to cover growing up?
2: No. And I just fell into it because Baltimore hired me to do baseball. I loved hockey growing up. I loved college basketball. I really liked all the sports. And when I started, it didn't matter to me. I would have done any sport for any paper. My only goal was to cover a beat for a major paper. A, sports, a, a major beat for a major paper. That was my only goal. And it could have been baseball, it could have been basketball, it could have been football. Now most of the great baseball writers were baseball guys, baseball fans. But I can't say I was like that. I just kind of fell into it. And actually, I left baseball for a while. Not totally, but I was a columnist for nine years, a general sports columnist. So I did mostly baseball in Baltimore. We didn't have football then. But I did a lot of other things then as well.
1: Uh Um. when, at, at what point did you start to, like, feel as if you were figuring things out uh, and getting a grip of the lay of the land and, and feeling like you were, uh, you were going somewhere?
2: I don't know. I guess when I became a columnist, and the only reason I became a columnist was because, dude, this paper, The National, was around. I don't know if you know about yeah, that, but yeah. this it's was, this was the greatest thing that ever happened to sports writers. They formed this paper, a national paper. It Really, if you want to draw an analogy, it was the USA Today of sports, but at the highest level. They hired the best people. And because they took so many people from so many different papers, all kinds of jobs opened up. And all any of us wanted was to get an offer from the national. They had beat guys. They had columnists. They had everything. And It was an all-star team. So they made me an offer to cover the Yankees, I think it was. It was one of the New York teams. And I didn't want to do it. I was about to get married to a woman from Baltimore. And she didn't mind moving to New York or anything, but I didn't want to do the beat if I didn't have to. So I used that to get the column. And I was very young as a columnist. I was 28 or so. But that's how I got to be a columnist. So at that point, when you get to be a columnist, that's pretty cool. But... I don't know if you ever feel like you're totally, you're, you're never comfortable in this business. It's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But at that point, yeah, that was that was good, and I guess you can say further, well, when you got to Fox, but even then, I wasn't established at Fox, and it was a weird place to go to. I didn't know anybody, so it took a long time, <laughs> it, forever, really.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh- this is a question that I got from my friend Tim Healy, and I think it fits in in, in a pretty good place. Given um, just given just given kind of uh, what it seems like, just be, always being on the edge in the industry. But uh, what career decision that you made were you mo- most unsure of at the time that you made it?
2: Hmm. I'll give you two, and they were different. When I left York for Camden, that was obvious. When I left Camden for Baltimore that was really obvious. When I went from the Baltimore Sun to the sporting news that was less obvious. At the time there was no better job in sports journalism than a columnist at a big city paper. That was the thing and I gave that up and I wasn't really sure how it was going to go. Now I gave it up and interestingly my wife had said to me ESPN was just getting going really in a big way then. And Tim had gone there. Jason Stark had gone there. And these were my peers. And my wife had said to me, hey, if those guys can do that, you would watch them on TV. Why couldn't you do that? And I would say, no, 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 no. I have this great job. I'm a columnist. I don't ever want to do that. But things were changing at the Baltimore Sun. I had some doubts about how that was going. Not the future of the newspaper industry, just at the Baltimore Sun. And the Sporting News offered me a job, and and the sports editor there was a guy who had interviewed me before for another job in San Jose. And he didn't hire me, (laughs) but he interviewed me for it. So that was tough to give up the column to do that, but I just felt it. I had to do it. I felt it was time. And I remember vividly the sports editor of the Washington Post, who was a guy I had interviewed with and someone who was very nice to me. His name was George Solomon. He's still around, Mm -hmm. good guy. And he said to me, "I can't believe what you're doing. You're giving up a column job at the Baltimore Sun to go work for the Sporting News. And the Sporting News at the time was owned by Paul Allen, who, of course, was the Microsoft guy. They had a lot of money. They, or he had a lot of money. It seemed like they were taking off on the internet, which was just getting going, really. So it was a risk, but I thought it was a worthwhile risk. But I, what he, what George said to me, stuck with me. And that was daunting. Mm-hmm. Now, when I went from the Sporting News to Fox." That was a little different. Now, that was obvious in a way, but it was a nervous time, too, because I knew I had to leave the Sporting News. They were always in financial trouble, and the sports editor had hired me, John Rawlings, or the editor had hired me, John, he had basically given me his blessing. He said, go. Go get something else if you can. And I had offers from ESPN and Fox, and ESPN, of course, was a more established or obvious place to go, right? But the job seemed like it was going to be really hard. <laughs> it turned out I worked as hard as I was going to work there. I didn't realize that <laughs> at the time. I didn't, I didn't understand what was coming on. But that was a tough – it was just tough to make the call between the two. And there was no guarantee of television or Fox. There was no promise of that. It was come right for the website. We'll try you on TV. And if it works, well, then you'll have a chance maybe to work on the games and at the All-Star Game and the World Series, and I thought that was a great risk to take, I guess. I mean, Because if it worked out, my gosh, that was going to be amazing. And that was better than actually even anything ESPN could offer. Mm -hmm. So I tried it. I didn't know where it was going, but I knew I had to leave, so that that part wasn't difficult, but it was kind of hard to choose Fox over ESPN.
1: So what is the time frame on that?
2: That was uh, August
1: Two thousand five, and and that I mean, uh, that I mean that feels like the start of when kind of the internet began to take over as like the predominant medium as well.
2: Yes, I would say around that time it was pre Twitter still, right? But I mean, when I was hired by the sporting news, I was hired to write for the magazine and to write for the website. That was in two thousand. And the website, was, it was a big deal to them. So it was in full flow at that time, the internet, by 2005, I would say.
1: Uh, and how did you kind of adjust to, to more the, the immediacy of being a writer on the internet versus you know, being, a, being a part of a newspaper? That wasn't
2: a big deal because when you write for a newspaper, you're on deadline and you're accustomed to that. The only difference was you'd write at different hours of the day. The newspaper, you cover the game at night. You wouldn't have to worry about the rest of the day. It was kind of the beauty of that world. <laughs> you wouldn't have to write at 12 o'clock, at 3 o'clock, at 6 o'clock. But just as far as doing it, it wasn't much of an adjustment. The biggest adjustment was going from a local person to a national person.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But I had a good base because the Orioles had fired so many people <laughs> in those years. I remember the time... When I went to the sporting news, I told, I gave them a list, and it was Dan O'Dowd, who was, I believe, the GM of the Rockies by that time, or with the Indians, or so he was, a pretty big guy. Frank Wren who was the GM of the Braves, I believe, or assistant GM. Kevin Malone, Dodgers. There were a number of others as well. They had all worked for the Orioles, so I had, and and within like the last five years, and I so I covered them all. I knew them all. And that was a good base to have. And obviously, you had to build a lot more guys and, and get to know a lot more people. But that was the toughest thing, going to become a national guy at the time when Peter Gavins was still going great. Tim was great. There were so many others as well. And it, to build those contacts, that takes years and years just to, to do it right.
1: So what, what would you say has, was the, the most difficult part of that transition? How was how being local... Different than being national, other than obviously just the grander scope of covering so many more things.
2: Well, that, that's the big thing, obviously. You're responsible for 30 teams and knowing what's going on, 30 teams. I read for about two hours every day in the morning just about what happened last night. And I, I try to keep up as best I can. That's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. It's a grind. That's a grind. It, it kind of grinds you down. Like there were, when, there were game, when there were nights where there were three games, I'm so happy <laughs> because <laughs> that means the next day I'll have to read quite as much. But just getting to know people, that's the whole key to the whole business, really. Mm-hmm. And building those relationships. You don't think about it that way necessarily, but that's what you do. You talk and talk to people and you meet people and hopefully you gain their trust. And it does take a long time and you have to conduct yourself a certain way to gain that trust, I believe. And even then you you know, you're gonna piss people off. They'll come back to you. They'll leave. <laughs> it's a constant flow of people who are talking to you, people who are not talking to you. And it's just something you deal with. But you kind of have to build that. And it just takes time. It, it, it doesn't happen overnight.
1: I think, I think that's really interesting just because I think the idea of like quote unquote so, sources has – has changed within the the Twitter era, and there was like last year and, and two years ago, there was like the rise of the the teenage baseball scooper, uh, you know, led by led by Chris Cotillo and and uh, there was an article that I read, I think Baseball Perspective, that was basically just it was coming from an agents' perspective, and it was basically just like kids, DMing him and asking yeah. him to be a source, yeah, and which was crazy to me, <laughs> which which I, which is very amusing because. You know, uh, uh, that's not how it works. By right. The way. It's uh, you know, I feel, I feel you like don't say we could be my source. Like it's not like we to be my Valentine. It's not, <laughs> it's not like. <laughs> it's not like it's not like asking someone to be your friend in kindergarten or something. No. I mean, how do you how have you gone about developing those sources? Um, you know, especially in the age of Twitter, but you know, starting off as an as a national guy and and having to to compete with you know the likes of Gammons and Kirchin and well so many others. How how do you like how do you, how does that work for you?
2: It's just talking to people. And hoping to return your phone calls initially and then continue in those conversations over the years. And some young people will ask me, like, how do you do this? I want to be you. Well, I'm 53, right? I didn't just start this at 18. Now, these guys are doing it to some extent, but in my view, it takes a long time. And it's not – the one thing about the teenage guys, I love them. I love their passion, but – They think journalism is breaking a story on Twitter of a minor league signing. That's not journalism. That's not why I got into this. I do it. I'm as guilty as anyone. (laughs) if Not more guilty. But I've explained it to someone, and it's not what this is about. And they explained to me, well, this is how we make our name. I'm like, okay. I can't argue with that. But it's so much more involved than that. I'm not saying it's rocket science. Don't get me wrong. But to report a story – a Good story, not just a signing, but a, a legitimate journalistic story it takes a lot more effort than one phone call to a guy you're asking to have as your source. It's just that it, it, it pains me when I see this kind of thing, but it is the way it's the world we live in right now. Mm-hmm. Can't deny that.
1: Uh, and I think the value of the scoop has obviously changed, uh, since yes, since the age of you know the dawn of Twitter, you know, the, the news cycle is. 10 minutes it can like it can be it can be like completely short uh just because there's so much turnover every at, on and on at every single second um how have you seen that change from your vantage point
2: yeah it's definitely happened and it's created a sloppier world and a more immediate world obviously it's more immediate but more mistakes are made and I'm not just talking about others, I'm talking about myself too. There are things that, because you're going so fast, it doesn't always come out exactly right. Now, the beauty of it is you can correct it right away right when you see it, but in the old days, before all this madness, you had to have two sources, and if you did not have two sources, don't even come close. You really should have more for a newspaper story that we would do back then. Now, today, I still prefer two sources, and I almost always we'll go for two sources or more, but there are times where there's no, that's not happening, right? You got one, you got to go. And that's a dangerous wild, wild west kind of environment. And it's not cool, Mm -hmm. but that is where we are. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely changed things. And I don't know that it's necessarily changed things for the better. And you are so right about the scoops, June. And I struggle with this all the time. I'm fighting as hard as I can to be first on most things, but in my view, the value of a deeper story is becoming bigger, a story that can't be confirmed in 10 seconds. And I'll give you an example. A recent story I did quoting several players about the drug testing that's going on. They had some issues with it. Some wanted more higher, harsher penalties. This was before the Colabello positive test. That was a story people couldn't follow. It was just there. Now, is it going to get you on trade rumors? No. But it was... a Good story. So, in my view, those stories have more value now than ever before. And yet, the way to grab attention and to get people's attention and to be prominent is the other stuff. So, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a good answer. And I struggle with it really all the time, trying to figure out what the best strategy is. And I kind of wake up every morning, all right, how are we going to win today? How, you know, how, what are you going to do? And I don't know that I have good answers all
1: the time i feel like especially with um basically just like micro reporting like people reporting every little thing that goes on in any sport you know across you know in the nfl you know you see the injury reports and in baseball you see minor league signings and i think i think that's consistent across all sports um do you think that the idea that information being currency uh in the age of twitter has that has that evolved uh, at all
2: in what way? I'm not sure I follow that.
1: Like i uh the way that I understand obviously I'm not a, a national insider, so I don't have particular insight into this, but uh from what I understand at least, when when you're when you're when you're a, a big reporter kind of going for these kind of scoops, um it's not just a one way street where a source just tells you information. You're often trading information with sources uh based on X, Y, and Z going on.
2: Uh I
1: think that's somewhat overstated. Uh,
2: There's times, certainly, where I am giving information, and there are times where certain people are looking to me for information and trying to find stuff out that works to my benefit, too. If a guy says, hey, I hear this, I'll check it. Obviously, if I get it, I get it, and everybody knows the answer at that point. He knows it. We know it, whatever. But this idea that you're trading off things for scoops. Well, I don't like to do that. I, I, it's dangerous to do that. It does happen. I can't deny that it happens. But I try to stay pretty above board, and I think people hopefully recognize that. Um, it, it's like the, any journalistic relationship, not just sports writing, I would imagine covering the White House. That that's a, There's a give and take. That's understandable. That's the way it, it works. But at the same time, you have to maintain your – faithfulness to the reader or the viewer, whoever it is, that's where you're working for. That's who you work for.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You don't work for the teams, you work for the reader. So when sometimes a team will say, or a player or, or executive, whoever, will say, hey, can you get this out there or whatever? If it's in my interest, yeah. But my interest and their interest don't always you know, hit the same place or the sure. same sweet spot. If they do, I have no problem with it, and if people think that's being used, fine, I'm serving my readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's a fine line. I won't deny it's a fine line.
1: Yeah. Um do you enjoy um I mean what do you enjoy doing more? Obviously it's a very different thing, but I mean you're writing, and you're getting these scoops. Uh how does that compare to what you're doing on television and what was that transition into TV like for you?
2: Difficult. Because I did I'd never really done anything like that. And I did I wasn't natural at it. It took a long, long time to get comfortable at it. It was a little bit rocky at Fox at times. So that Just the mechanics of doing television, just how you, you do it. It looks easy because the people who are on TV make it look so easy, but it, it takes a little while it's, to get down. Now, what I do on television is not much different than what I do in print. It basically is information telling stories. That kind of thing. So I always have viewed it, the TV part of it, as an outgrowth of what I'm doing in print. I'm generating stories, and hopefully those stories I'll write, and then we'll talk about it on TV or for a broadcast. Maybe I'll generate the stories for TV and then write them. It, it, it can go either way, but it's all working hand in hand, mm-hmm. and I, I see it that way. As for what gives me the most satisfaction, I would still say writing a good story Maybe it's a column. Maybe it's that story like the one I just described to you. Maybe it's something else. I don't know that I would say it's a scoop on Twitter or a particular interview on TV. I still get the most, I still love to write. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people will ask me, why are you writing so much? You don't have to do that anymore. But I can't stop doing that. That's what I have always done. Mm-hmm. So I would still say that gives me the most satisfaction. I don't know that I'm great at it, but at the same time, I, I love it. That That's where it all started. That, to me, is the whole source of what I do.
1: Who Who are the writers that you enjoy reading?
2: Baseball writers?
1: Yeah, or just, I mean, anything, really.
2: Okay, well, I don't read much more than baseball, because that's all I do. <laughs> it's pathetic, actually. I enjoy, first of all, I, I still have Columnists that I read because I admire them so much from the days when I was a columnist. Dan Shaughnessy, I think is amazing. I know people have their issues with him or whatever, but just the way he writes, he's such a good writer. Mark Wicker was an idol of mine when I was in school at Penn, and he was at the Philadelphia Daily News, and he's someone who still is brilliant. He's the Orange County Register now, I believe. There are tons of people, baseball writers, Domorosi is a friend of mine, a teammate of mine, but he's one of my favorites. Jeff Passan, I think, is great. Andy McCullough, great. Mm -hmm. And, of course, all my peers, Heyman, Buster, these guys, they're all really, really, really good. Mm -hmm. Jason. Jason's amazing. Mm -hmm. Gary Krasnick. I I love them all. They're all good. They're all different. They're all great. So that is, I guess, a list of some. Now, outside of baseball, I wish I read more outside of baseball. I just don't. I just don't have the time. Even in the off season, it sometimes like in January when things slow down a little bit or February, I'll read a couple of books really fast. <laughs> but it's hard. I, I won't say anything else. It's hard. I, I don't really pick my head up too often.
1: Uh, what is your daily schedule like? How many hours of sleep are you getting? What time do you wake up? Uh, and what does a typical day look like for you?
2: It, it's never the same. It depends if I'm going to MLB Network. It depends on a lot of things. But generally, I will wake up start reading. That's, all, that's what I always do. I start reading. No matter where I'm going, that's what I'm, I'm doing. Now, on Friday or Thursday, Thursday or Friday, I travel to the Fox Game of the Week at site. All day Friday, I will prepare by making calls, doing research, all kinds of things. I'll go to the game and talk to players and people before the game. And usually, I'll go back to my hotel room as the game starts and do my prep work in the hotel room. I just prefer it that way. And then Saturday's the broadcast. It's a big day, obviously, and I do usually the pregame show, uh, another segment for our website, and then we do the game and a post-game interview. Sunday, I usually kick back a little bit, but sometimes I'll have a story that comes out of the weekend and I'll write. And then Monday, it's just, usually I'm at the network three or four days a week, all different hours. And sleep is i st- i do sleep i i don't, i, 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 I <laughs> in the off season sometimes it's tough because we do the Hot Stove show on MLB network which i have to get up for at 6:30 the show's on at 9 we meet at 7 and i will chase stuff into the night so that, there are, there are nights in the off season that are short <laughs> but that's just the way it is. And the winter meetings—that's you know—that's a mess. <laughs> just <laughs> sleep it <in> that thing. <laughs>
1: uh, what is the competition like between uh, you and and you know your your peers? You know, John John Morosi, John Heyman, Buster, all those guys. Um, what how what is that that relationship dynamic like? Even if there is not like a an in person relationship, what is how do you kind of deal with all of that?
2: I try to deal with it with great respect because. All of those guys are really, really good at what they do. And you have to understand that you're going to get beat. And the way I think as baseball writers we've developed it is for the most part, most of us credit each other, not all of us. I'm not going to mention names. <laughs> if you could figure it out if you're paying attention. But I believe in that mutual respect because, man, John Heyman's a great reporter. Buster only great reporter. All these guys. And the beat guys are all really good. So – There just has to be an acceptance that you're not always going to win and and take it like a man or a woman (laughs) or an adult, I should say, when you don't win. And that's kind of just how I look at it. Now, I don't like to lose and I am a sore loser, but I try to keep it to myself that I don't believe in Twitter pissing matches or anything like that. I think it's unprofessional.
1: How do you feel about Twitter? Like what is, obviously you have to use a lot for your job, but how do you just like feel about it as a place?
2: love hate and sometimes more on the hate. I don't like that everyone thinks, how do I say this? I don't like what it's done to our business, first of all. And I mentioned this earlier, the sloppiness that's resulted from it. I don't like that it's made young people think that that's what journalism is. I don't like any of that. It bothers me. I do like that we can interact with fans and readers and And I like the immediacy, and you you don't have to hold the story until the next day. John Hayman put this really well. I remember him saying this. He said, hey, I used to have stories when I was working for a paper. Maybe I have it at 3 p.m. And I had to worry all day that somebody was going to get it. Well, with Twitter and the internet, that situation does not exist. You you can get it out there. So that's a positive. The interaction is a positive. People with their big mouths, not a positive. A lot of people are respectful. A lot of people tell you you're an idiot all the time and (laughs) it's not the greatest and what the women go through on Twitter is just ridiculous to me and if I were them I don't know that I would ever look at mentions I try not to look myself but sometimes fans are quite sharp Mm -hmm. and sometimes they pick up things that my editors don't pick up they correct me and I appreciate that Mm -hmm. so I would say love hate it's not my favorite thing I will
1: Mm -hmm. say that uh what, are, what do you kind of hope to do over the next five to ten years? Um, you know, I, I assume that this is a lifestyle that's, uh, that's pretty hard to maintain. Um, yeah. And I was, talking to, I was talking to Buster came onto the podcast and he was talking about how maybe five to ten years he would maybe just like want to be writing books and just long form stuff. What, what is kind of what your hope is uh, to do down the road?
2: Great question. I don't know. And my feeling is, and I once remember, Jim Rome told me this. And I was a guest on his show, and I was really honored to be on his show. I was young. I don't remember why I was on his show. But it was in L.A. It was the television show. And I got flown out to L.A. to be on the show. I think I was at the Sporting News. And he was talking about his career. I don't know how it even came up. And he said, you know what, I'm going to ride this as long as I can. It goes away quickly, and I'll just do this as long as I can. Well, obviously, he's done it. This must go back 15 years, and he was big then. And that's kind of my feeling. I'll go as long as I can. And when I can't go anymore, and when they're tired of me, and they make changes at Fox or Rainbow Network or wherever, I'll hopefully be mature enough to understand that's the nature of the business and just go in a different route. Would I like to slow down in a perfect world? Of course. But for whatever reason, this is who I am in the business. And I don't see it changing dramatically anytime soon unless um, <laughs> unless it's not my choice, right? And then I have to change. But I don't know. At this age, too, fifty. when you're 53, Buster's about my age. If you have a health issue at some point, that obviously affects things. I haven't had any. But... You have to think about it at least. So, I don't know, and I always tell people, I like to write a book about all the things I've experienced today, but I'm not going to be able to do it until I'm 90, <laughs> and that, that's kind of how I see it right now. Uh,
1: is is there at any point where you just kind of step back and you're you're just kind of in awe of just like, wow, I get to to write about baseball for a living?
2: Yes, all the time,
1: all, all the time, and especially
2: when i'm in a park for a broadcast on a beautiful day and i'm sitting there i'm like right next to the dugout right i'm like wow this is unbelievable and i I, to this day i can't believe i've done 11 years the the games on saturdays and it's still amazing to me and i remember last year we had a game at wrigley on my birthday and who cares about your birthday whatever (laughs) but i'm sitting there it's my birthday it's a day game it's wrigley it's you know the crowd's going it. It, they were good, right? It was really exciting. I think they were playing the Pirates. And I'm like, man, there's no place I'd rather be on the in the world than right here today. Mm-hmm. And I often feel like that. I don't ever take that for granted. And when I'm doing an all-star game or World Series, I always think I, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. Mm-hmm. Because, again, my only goal was to cover a beat for a newspaper. <laughs> that's all I want. If, if that was what it was going to be, that's all I ever got to. That would have fulfilled my goal. So, all this is just crazy. It's great.
1: What, what's been your biggest, like, pinch me moment? Like, a moment that you couldn't even imagine, like, a young Ken Rosenthal the being D-M's. in a situation of? The Emmys. That,
2: that, that's because I never even aspired to be in television. My dad would used, used to tell me, hey, maybe one day I can go into television, at least make a little money. And my dad forget it, not happening. <laughs> this was back when there was no ESPN, this was when the only sports on TV. Sportscasters were the guys on the 11 o'clock news, and they were goofy, right? So I, I would tell them, That's not every, don't even think about that. That's not, I'm not, I said, if I don't make it in this, I'm still not doing that. And, of course, Peter Garrins for the baseball writers paved the way for all of us, and we owe him, all of us, unbelievable gratitude because he created jobs, he created pay raises, everything. It's all due to him. He succeeded, and if he hadn't succeeded, I don't know if any of this ever happens. So, to win an Emmy, that's unfathomable, and I don't have a lot of faith in awards. Really, I understand they're subjective and they can be really arbitrary, and I'm not pretending anything other than that. But when you win them, it's nice, and that's it's both both times I won it's just been an overwhelming shock. I was shocked last night when I won. <laughs> and, Because I'm looking, and here's why. In my categories, Tom Verducci, who is my hero. Tracy Wolfson, who is on CBS, The Final Four, she's great. Michelle Tafoya, NBC, Sunday Night Football, she is great. And Tom Rinaldi, who is at ESPN and is just brilliant and conducted what I thought was the single best interview of the year, at least from what I saw, the woman who lost to Serena, or beat Serena, I'm sorry, in the U.S. Open, and she was so emotional and he was so subtle. And so great in that moment so i can't even believe i'm mentioned with these people that's that's the that's the stuff that yeah you just sit there and go it's ridiculous that's crazy
1: do you have any good peter gammon stories because uh it's it's been uh, i've asked that question to a couple of other people and it's always produced some sort of very rich anecdote
2: yeah well i am not as close to peter as some of the others buster is really close to peter jason is really close to peter And, of course, they've worked with him at ESPN. Now, I've had the privilege the last few years of working with him at MLB Network. So we've talked more. We've gotten to know each other more. But I always loved Peter, of course. And not only was he the best at it, he was always very generous with the young guys to the point where...
1: I can can confirm that.
2: (laughs) Okay, but let me tell you how generous. Back when we weren't competing... Everybody wasn't competing for every story. This was the way it was for a long time. Peter called me one night in the Orioles press box. I was at Camden York. He goes, hey, you know, I think they're trading for, it was Geronimo Baroa. This is how I remember it. And I'm like, really? I, I, I had no clue about this. This was so far removed from anything that I was aware of. I'm like, okay. And I mentioned it to someone else, and he goes, ah, oh, Gavis, he makes stuff up. I'm like, I don't think he makes stuff up, no. (laughs) And I checked it, and of course, Gerardo Oroa was getting traded to the Orioles, and we got the story. That was a gift, and I don't even think Peter was conscious of it. It was just his normal conversation. And for that and for so many other things, again, we all owe him so much. He he was so great to all of us, and to this day. and, And like June, you just said it, you've experienced it yourself. It I mean, doesn't he matter t- how old He, you are, he tweeted you at me are.
1: yesterday, and I was like, whoa, what is happening? Like- <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, for him, it's,
2: it's normal. It's just the, it's the way he is. He, he is. he is a special guy.
1: Mm-hmm. That's all I can say. If you could, uh, if you could give some life advice or, or just advice to any, any young person trying to aspire um, to, to make it in this uh, cutthroat industry, what would it be?
2: Well, what I always tell young people is read a lot, write a lot, kind of try to find your own voice somehow, and it's not easy to do. Now, the one thing we haven't talked about, and this is more important than anything else, <laughs> I don't know how quite to say this, but you got to find the right partner. And my wife has put up with this crap for a long time, and she she's always been okay with it. We've, of course, had our times where it was not so okay. And I look at some of the young guys now with, with smaller children, JP and Pass is another one, and I'm grateful that I didn't have to do this job at that time. I have three; uh, we have three children. They're 25 soon, 23, and 20. So when I when they were really young, I was still at the Sun. Then I was at the Sporting News. It wasn't quite at this level of intensity. I don't know how that wouldn't have worked. It just wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. If so, I was lucky. My my wife's obviously a very independent person, and she's always been extremely supportive of me, and she's the right person. And we've been married 26 years, and that's the cold key. Because otherwise, I got to say, it's empty without that stuff, without the family. It's totally empty. And that, to me, is as big as everything else. Mm -hmm. Because the work is the work. It's fleeting. Your family, that that means actually Mm -hmm. something.
1: How did how how did you kind of balance that?
2: Not well. And my wife has been supportive to the point where I never really had to balance it. There is no balance. For the most part, work has come first. And listen, I've tried to be as good a father as I can and I don't think my kids would say I was a bad father. I think they'd say I was okay, but they can't say that I was around all the time. And you know, they, it's all they ever knew though. And my wife will tell people it's all she ever knew. Even because we met when I was a beat guy, so I've just been very lucky. And there have been times where the balance has been awful, and it just, it <laughs> <you> just, <laughs> it can't even describe it. But there also have been things that we've been benef- We've been lucky because of what I've done too. But there have been some benefits, not a lot in this equation, but on occasion, and. Again, that's been – that's the whole key for me. That mm-hmm. I, my wife and my kids have been so great.
1: Mm-hmm. My last question for you. If you could go back in time and uh, go, to, go talk to uh, a younger Ken Rosenthal, and you can choose whatever age that is. But okay. if you a c- lot of ages to choose from. <laughs> if, you go, if you could go back in time and, and, and talk to a young Ken um, and kind of tell him where you are, uh, what do you think he would say?
2: If I'm talking to the young Ken, yeah, I would have told. I know what the answer is for me. I tell it to my kids actually. That young guy, when I was in York and when I was in South Jersey, I worried a lot about what was going to happen next and what the next step would be. Even in Baltimore, I would say I was like that, and it was always uncertainty. And hey, that's kind of normal to worry. But I probably worried more than most. And age teaches you that things do work out. Now, they don't always work out the way you want. And I've had some sideways turns in my career, too. But generally, if you work hard enough, you do your thing right, hopefully you get close to where you want to be. Now, our business dumps on people all the time now. So that's kind of a idyllic view of it. And I don't want to give an idyllic view of it. But it just doesn't seem as... Every little thing doesn't seem as dramatic as we thought it was back then. For instance, if I had never gotten, I, when I didn't, I'll give you an example. I'm in Baltimore. I was up for the Washington Post two different times. Didn't get it either time. It's crushed. And it turns out, best thing that ever happened to me, right? Because this, all this other stuff wouldn't have happened. I would have probably stayed at the Washington Post. that who else? Where, where else would you want to be? That's a great, great newspaper. So things do work out now it doesn't work out for everybody i get that but i would tell that young guy just take it easy man just do your thing that, that's what i would say
1: thanks thanks again so much for your time uh i really really appreciate it all right talk soon thanks you. have a good one
0: you are a melody i hear you all the time it really gets to me it's always on my mind you are my favorite song your love is thanks
1: again to Ken Rosenthal for joining the show this week. I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. If you don't follow Ken already on Twitter, which I assume if you're listening to the podcast, you do, but he's like Ken underscore Rosenthal. Uh, thanks again to to him for coming on to the show. Uh, if this is your first time listening, please make sure to subscribe. It's not too late to join the bandwagon yet. And uh, head over to iTunes and do that. Leave us a rating because it really does help us out. Tell a friend about the show. Share it on Twitter, whatever. You can follow the show on Twitter at BartoloPod. You can follow me on Twitter at IamJuneLee. Uh, not sure yet if there's going to be a podcast next week. I think there's going to be one with Scott Braun from MLB Network. Uh, but we'll see how it goes. And uh, I think that's it. Long live Bartolo Colon. The, his home run was probably one of the best moments of my life. Uh, until next week, guys. I'll see you guys in the next one.
0: Song. Your love is just a fight. You play me all the time. Your love is just your love is simple, baby. You've been on my mind since you're watching me. I do it all the time my, 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 my. And since you say you love me. It's just a fight. It's just, a fight. It's just a fight. Thank mm-hmm.